The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, take out your crampons and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 379 with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded live Friday, August 29th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who gets a runner's high from climbing a flight of stairs, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, New London, and Richard's here for the intro. Howdy, howdy. You were like climbing a mountain or something. Uh, you know, just wandering around Nepal. Tell me about it. Uh, it was an adventure. Uh, we flew into Kathmandu, uh, me, Steve Forte, a few other troublemakers, and then uh, spent a couple of days looking around there. Uh, interesting place. Nepal, of course, uh, mostly Buddhist country, so lots of Buddhist temples and good stuff like that. And then we went to uh, the Kumdu Valley, which is, of course, where Everest is. And you fly in on a little twin otter and land in a place called Lukla. And Lukla is famous for the fact that their runway is not level. You land uphill. Wow. Which is exciting, mostly because when you leave, you you uh, leave going downhill, which, you know, kind of makes you committed. Yeah, I think uh, so. Exciting runway, I guarantee it. And that's about 9,000 feet. That's where you start. And uh, you walk uphill from there. So the the lower parts of the Kumdu Valley is where the Sherpa live. They 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 are a particular group of people. Uh, small. Do they uh, do they really smoke cigarettes at Everest? Uh, there were some folks doing that, but uh, that's crazy. At the time that we got there. So I mean, the Everest Base Camp is the end of the journey that we did. So the first, you know, it was eight days from Lukla to get to Everest Base Camp, and the first half is villages and like a nice place actually it's it's Farishé, which was sort of in the middle was at fourteen thousand feet which is wacky when you think that's the top of a mountain anywhere in the continental united states right so that's the base camp no no the fourteen thousand feet of Farishé was a village right Just the village Yaks wandering through the street 
But uh, the base camp's actually about 17,500 feet. And, and once you're there, there's not much of anything. It, nobody lives there. In fact, when we got there, there was nothing there. The, there was no base camp because no expeditions had started yet. So all it is is really it's the end of the ice fall. So when you want to climb Everest, the easy way, apparently there's an easy way, you climb over this ice fall and uh, up the, the western coom and through the south column and up the western face. And so the, the base camp is where the yaks can carry your supplies to. And then after that, you have to carry them on your back. Now, uh, how far is it to the summit from the base camp? 11,000 feet. Another 11,000. So are you ever going to do that, Richard? No, they, there's a great thing about coming to the base camp, standing at, you know, 17,500 feet, looking up, seeing another 11,000 feet of mountain, mountain you just kind of go, no fucking way. <laughs> what am I thinking? Get me what am here. I thinking? It was, it's ice and rock and blizzards. What's wrong you, with me? I'm at the bottom of the mountain. I want to die. So we turned around, went back. Good for you. Good for you. I'm not doing that. That's just silly. That's crazy. You know, they, they, you can trek to that point and there's no reason to do it except to say you've done it. Yeah. Cause there's nothing to see. Yeah. You know, there's nothing there. There's avalanches about every hour, right? Like <laughs> it's yodel. it's a dangerous place. To, you know, Fairshea and 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 Namche Bazaar, beautiful places. Go to eleven thousand feet. It's great there. Base camp, forget it. It's crazy. Yeah, have some soup. Go home. Yeah, uh, soup every day. <laughs> Garlic soup. All right. Well, that's fascinating, Richard. Let's get into uh, better know framework now. <laughs> I guess we have a show to do. We should. Uh... Funny. Yeah. I'm trying to get back into the swing of this thing. So there's your crazy theme song. Crazy. Tell me, tell me what you got. Uh, today, it's a, a fascinating little piece of the framework called Array Segment of T. Oh. It's a wrapper around an array that delimits a range of elements in that array. And multiple instances can refer to the same original array and can overlap. So obviously, it's a, a reference type. It's referential. And um, how it works is that let's say you have an array. The example in the uh, documentation has the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, you know. Oh, kill me. Just a bunch of strings. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can get a segment. uh, You say dim some variable as new array segment. I'm I'm in VB here of string. And then as a second param, not as a second parameter, but in parentheses directly after that, for VB anyway, you pass in the array. Right. And uh, for C sharp, you know, you define array segment of string, variable equals new array segment of string, and then in parentheses, the array. You can just pass in the array to get all the elements in the entire array, or you can pass in an array, a starting element. Zero base, of course, and an end element. So three parameters, and you can pull out a range of items in that array. Cool. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's a nice little feature. Right segment of T. Know it, love it, learn it. Love it. So uh, we're going to read an email today. Yeah. I dug through the email, stacked a couple of old ones here from before I left that I meant to get to. Uh, This one starts out, hello, Carl and Richard, names appearing in the order they appear in the podcast image. (laughs) What is it with people? They think we're going to get offended. I I blame myself. (laughs) I have been enjoying your show since April of this year. That would be 2008. I won an iPod Touch in a contest at my work. About a week later, a coworker suggested I should subscribe to your podcast. Before your show, I always thought that iPods were cool, but what would I do with one? Now I wonder how I could ever have survived without one. Sort of like a microwave oven. Yeah. 
or a fridge. I particularly enjoyed show 362 with James Kovacs on Inversion of Control. That was great, wasn't it? I know you particularly enjoyed that show, too. It was a good well, he's one. so good at explaining these things. Absolutely. I quickly surfed to and read James' accompanying MSDN Magazine article. This all fits together with some random presentations I attended this year. Back in January, I attended a particularly good talk by Ron Jacobs. Another guy should be on our show. Yeah called The Perfect Pattern Storm, where he investigated the model view presenter and testability. Also, Yuval Lowy gave an excellent talk at TechEd Orlando on .NET interface-based programming, the best design talk I've ever seen in over a decade. Yeah, he's good. Anyway, after listening to and reading James's article, it occurred to me that understanding .NET interfaces is critical to these topics and is generally underrepresented in publications and articles. Interfaces can also lead to testability, greater decoupling, better cohesion, and all that kind of goodness. So oh, yeah. there you go. Interface is what it's all about. It's all about. It sounds like a DNR TV or something. Maybe a show or something. Absolutely. Thanks so much for turning my commute time into a learning experience. Dale Thompson from Sarasota, Florida. Well, Richard, we are in the middle, in the throes of the .NET Rocks Tech Ed Europe sweepstakes. And we started this the day you left for Nepal. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not complaining. Timing. It made my life easy. Yeah, I'm sure. So uh, for those of you who don't know what we're doing, we're giving away a free ticket to TechEd. We're giving away airfare and a hotel stay. So basically, all expenses except those you incur on your own card in your own room in the privacy of whatever you do. Yeah. And we don't want to know. We don't want to know, basically. So uh, all you got to do is go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona. And you can fill out a form, and uh, every week, come by and answer a question about a show the previous week. Last week's question was, in show 376, what word does Charles Petzold use to describe Alan Turing? A, geek. B, nerd. C, genius. What would you think, Richard? I would think genius. He actually called him a nerd. He did. Yeah. Oh. So I guess that's fair. out of all of the correct answers, we chose Sander Riken from the Netherlands. And I'm not even going to pronounce where in the Netherlands. Forget <laughs> it. <laughs> a place that does not need to buy a vowel. Yeah. And uh, congratulations, Sander. You win, as all weekly winners do, a Tom Bin brain bag. The best bag in the world. The best backpack made, period. So we, uh, we're giving one of those away every week to the winners that are picked at random from all the correct answers. And all of those weekly winners go into a pool. And on October 20th, we are going to pick a winner of the grand prize. Woohoo! Now, come on. I know more people out there want to go to Tech Ed Europe. And guess what? If you don't, if you can't go this year, you can go next year. Yes. So you get a chance to plan. So just go ahead. What do you got to lose? Go answer the question and you know, all it takes is a dollar and a dream, somebody once said. Absolutely. So, Richard, before we get Reverend Hollis out here, let's uh, just give another quick plug for our friends at Infusion down in New York City. They're looking for good people. They want you to come to Manhattan and live there for a year, rent-free, in a New York apartment, and draw a New York salary and work for them. Uh, they want the best and the brightest. That's why they came to us. <laughs> and uh, show them what you're made of. They've already hired some I don't know, 18, 19, 20 people from the .NET Rocks pool, and they're all having a great time. They also have openings in Dubai, 
way over there at the, uh, I don't know what you would call this. The, the Arabian Sea. Well, I'm, I was trying to think of a, a coy sort of nickname for Dubai. It's sort of like a, a high-tech playground in the Middle East. It's Oil Disneyland. It's That's it. That's it. <laughs> that's it, Richard. You're a genius. I'm on it. You're neither a nerd nor a geek. You are a genius. All right. Oil Disneyland. Okay. Well, anyway, if you're interested in any of that, send me an email at carl at franklins.net. Our guest today is none other than the illustrious Billy Hollis, Reverend Billy. And uh, he has been in this uh, .NET business since before .NET 1.0. In fact, he and Rocky Latka wrote the very first book on the .NET framework for programmers. And, uh, man, uh, well... What else is there? I mean, he's he's shipped a, a a whole handful of projects all on time, and all without the help of uh, extreme programming. <laughs> I was trying to explain to my wife as we were hurrying back. This is a Friday recorded show, so anything is possible for those who are listening. Right. Uh, I was trying to explain to my wife who is Billy Hollis. Said Billy Hollis is one of those rare guys that actually makes a living shipping software every day. Yeah. Once in a while, he takes a break to make fun of the rest of us. <laughs> Most of the time, he just ships software. <laughs> yeah, speak softly and carry a uh, big laptop. Well, Don't be afraid to use it. And he has the best Twitter account in the world. Everyone should sign up to his Twitter account. This is pointless. This is pointless. <laughs> that's, what it's, that's his account name. So... Billy hasn't even said a word yet. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just letting you guys go back and forth, and we love you, you know, man. We love all you. these lies about me because, yeah, I, you know, I do look work a lot on software, but I do other stuff too. Sure, uh, get get into. I, I like to write actually because you know when you use word processors and you misspell a word, the word processor does not crash, which kind of <laughs> is an interesting <laughs> sort of change from from programming. So, so yeah, I like to do a lot of different things, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh my uh, gosh so you had quite a rousing success with your dnr tv episode showing a real world wpf business app That's absolutely carl it was a it was a response quite a bit beyond what i expected it to be uh including messages from a lot of people inside microsoft i don't know what kind of uh, feedback you've gotten on the thing but uh, i had perhaps a dozen people from inside microsoft mail me and ask questions about it and ask to discuss some of the interesting points and sort of call it out to the community as an example of some things going on. As I said on that video, I don't think I'm the only one doing this kind of stuff. Apparently but I, you are. Well, I think <laughs> the others are kind of being secretive about it. Yeah, because maybe. Oh, right. There's a lot of investment involved to get to that point, and yeah. I just happened to have a client that was very good about allowing us to do that investment and go through the prototyping process yeah. and, and screen things to the users and get something that we think really suits that particular problem domain well. Uh, and I think it would, could, would suit some other similar business problem domains well, although I wouldn't claim that it would be kind of the ultimate UI for WPF. I don't know that we'll ever see that, actually. Well, you sort of, if it's not the ultimate UI, it's certainly the poster child for it at the moment. Uh, you don't really see a lot of other um, projects being so visible. Well, that, that's certainly true. And, uh, you know, some of the people called it out, Brad Abrams. I don't know if you saw his blog post. I did not. That's the guy at Microsoft, uh, for those who, who aren't familiar with him, who is responsible. What's, what's Brad's title? I don't recall off the top of my head. But he's uh, responsible for the whole Silverlight development effort superhero. up there. Superhero. 
Yeah, yeah without a doubt, superhero. He announced Silverlight on the show, right? We right. simul we released the show the same time he was on stage at Mix announcing Silverlight. So. And so this this whole area is a pretty big deal for him, and it was very gratifying to see him call it out as as, as something. Um, and, and one of the things I like about the responses that I'm getting that. You know, I see this sometimes, but it seems to be particularly true this time around, is that the Microsoft people are doing what I call aggressive listening. I mean, they really mm-hmm. want to know what kind of a process we went through and mm-hmm. why we made some of the decisions we did and how we're using the product. And, and I think that's good because we talked about this on previous episodes, the fact that as, as smart as those guys are, they really don't develop applications. That's not generally their background. And so even though they know their own products very well and they're very smart, that lack of perspective on application development is a bit of a handicap. So they've produced this wonderful WPF technology. I mean, man, it will do Mm. just about anything you can imagine on the screen compared to earlier technologies. But then people don't necessarily know what to do with all of that because how many years have we spent developing GUIs now? We've got a lot of habits to break, and, and there are no no different than the rest of us. They've been looking at GUIs just as long. So I'm happy about the fact that they saw something that looked different, and they really did want to call it out and try to learn whatever lessons from it that they could, because we sure learned a lot in the process. Your guys are using both um, expression tools and Visual Studio to do this kind of stuff, I assume. Yeah, that's right. I don't know how you could get by with a serious development effort in WPF or Silverlight if you didn't have Blend. I I just don't see how you could do it. Current version of Blend is 2, and the shipping version, there's a 2.5 preview out. And 2.5, the beta, is really the only thing that currently supports Silverlight 2.0. Isn't that right? That's right, and that's what we all have installed at this point. Just because even though we're kind of mainstreaming the, the app in WPF now. We're trying to respect the limitations of Silverlight because we do expect to transition it sometime next year. So you, are you saying that you all have 2.0 or 2.5 installed? We have uh, 2.5 for Blend. Oh. And then the 2.0 beta, whatever it is, for Silverlight. How, how stable, in your opinion, is 2.5, the, the preview? The, the Blend, I've only noticed a couple of minor issues. Blend is evolving very, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And while the previews have a little bit of fit and finish issues, they aren't enough. I have not seen them be enough to cause uh, any serious production problems. Okay. There were a couple of minor glitches in that they wrote some XAML that was kind of screwy, and we had to edit by hand, but it was comparatively minor issues. So no big crashes and losing your projects and stuff like that? None that, I, none that we have seen. That's great. That's great to hear. So what about Silverlight in general? Or, or, I mean, the blend, I guess, is the cutting edge of Silverlight 2.0 development, which really is the first .NET Silverlight, if you want to call it that. Well, is this ready, ready to use? Well, I see that? that's a complex question to, to, to answer. I mean, I've been working with it. But I haven't been working with it for production. Basically, my own strategy has been that every time they introduce a significant beta, I'm going to work with it long enough, and typically that means two or three weeks at a stretch, to understand what it can do and what it can't, get a feel for where it's at and whether or not it's ready to kind of transition into the kind of production applications that I do 
And so far, the answer to that question is no, that it's not quite there. Every version gets better. Now, I don't mean that I think it's not good for anyone or anything. In fact, I am doing a revamp of my website with it. And when Silverlight launches, I'll transition over to a complete Silverlight website. And I'm making progress in doing some very interesting and nice things. And then we had stuff like the recently concluded Olympics project. Yeah which was very, very impressive and done in Silverlight. And Scott Stanfield is doing some interesting stuff around the presidential conventions. Uh, So I think that Silverlight's such an advance that there are circumstances for which it's worth it to work through the limitations because it's a work in progress right now. There are such situations. I don't happen to work in those areas because I'm doing business software. And the business apps I mostly do, you know, Mac support, that's just icing on the cake for us. It's not something that we have to have. We can click once, deploy our stuff, and use WPF. Why do you even care about Silverlight? If you're building business apps, do they need to be on the web? Aren't these internal applications? Some of those applications probably never will transition to Silverlight because they might need some things that WPF does. For example, integration of mapping and some of the other leading-edge capabilities is very, very easy with WPF. It can be done with Silverlight, but it's harder. So some people will choose never to make that investment because they won't see the benefit. The, The benefits of Silverlight, though, are substantial. Even for some business apps, the simpler deployment model is a help. Uh, deploying yeah. the .NET framework to machines is not something that, well, let's say the gap between deploying the .NET framework to a host of machines, let's say a 1,000 or 2,000 of them, and, employing the, and deploying the Silverlight runtime, that's a pretty big gap. That's a huge gap. I mean, yeah. okay. even though .NET 3.5 is a much shrunken version of the framework. That's right. Even though they've got some interesting things for client installs and such, it's still just a big gap there. So I would rather use Silverlight's simpler deployment model, and the wider reach is nice. You know, you may have employees that are sitting at home and they decided to get a Mac. Uh, and in order to prepare for that, especially in our – some of the software we're doing – is software as a service, meaning it needs to go to the broadest possible audience. In that case, the reach really does have value. So we're trying to avoid using anything that Silverlight won't support Mm -hmm. at some point. Uh, But at this point in time, my judgment is that the extra time that would be required to create workarounds and and deal with stuff that's not quite there yet, uh, it isn't worth it for me yet. I want to understand Silverlight well enough to do some things with it as adjuncts to the main project, and to understand when it's time to transition to it, but it is not our principal development tool at this point. Let's um, just take a, a quick tangent down uh, the tour of ex- the expression products, and because there are a bunch of them, and you know it's been a while since we talked about them in general. So you, I know you've got Expression Blend, which sort of lets you do the XAML and uh, hook that up to Visual Studio. You also have a designer, which is more like a paint program, right? That's right. That's part of the expression suite. And that, that is simply for designing graphical elements. Is that right? That is, I would call it, I would characterize it as a simplified version of something like CorelDRAW or Adobe Illustrator. Okay. That it not basically allows you, it allows you to do, no, it's not a Photoshop thing. Uh, expression Web would probably be actually closer to that to that space. Is Expression Web what you create Silverlight content in, or do you create that in Blend as well? But Silverlight content, t- content from the point of, of design of the pages and such is almost all, all done in Blend. 
Okay. Now, silver, now, expression web will help you do a lot of the interesting visuals. And then expression design will help you do vectorized things that might need scaling in your ultimate UI. Doesn't it seem like all these things could be in one product? Well, actually, it's probably good to split them out because if you've used Photoshop versus Illustrator or Corel Draw versus you know something that handles media because there's another piece of expression available for for working with media right, expression media if, right so if you if you look at those different different things except for the fact that sometimes in vectorized situations you want to call in um bitmaps or vice versa except for that overlap what you're doing is different in each of those tools so let's say i wanted to you create a website where i've got this nice silverlight finish glossy thing where Maybe I've got some uh, boxes. When I hover over them, I want them to sort of grow and show a little composite video, and then I click on that, and then I can see a bigger video. Something with all of those tools in it, that seems to employ, you know, it's going to be a website, so I got web, it's going to have animation, so I got blend, and it's going to have media, so I've got expression media in right. there. What Do I have to use all three of those tools to do something like that? Basically, in order to, to do something, well... To do it most effectively and productively, yes, you would need to use all of those different tools. Mm. There are, of course, alternatives. If people have Photoshop, mm. then that's the, that's going to be their bitmap tool from, in most cases yeah. because they, that's what they like. That's what they know how to use. They already have a lot of images for it. And, in fact, we tend to use Photoshop a lot because the young man who is doing a lot of the visuals, the bitmap visuals, is from that world. I have been using Corel Draw since version 2.0 yeah. in 1990. Therefore, expression design doesn't have as much appeal to me as it might somebody just coming in. It seems a little awkward because it doesn't work the way I expect. So there are alternatives to all of these tools. And if you happen to be doing sort of prepackaged kind of stuff where you're using images and vectorized icons and such that somebody else has already produced or you're buying some package of them, then you don't need these tools at all unless you want to do some tweaking of those things. Just It just seems like a lot of stuff to learn to, to get what is essentially a single experience. It absolutely is. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot, especially for the typical developer type yeah. to learn. Because when they walk up to Blend, you know, the typical developer isn't really going to like Blend. I mean, yeah. it's kind of a hybrid between Visual Studio and Corel Draw, yeah. And it's going to be doing things that they don't really necessarily understand why you would want to do them. Um, and so, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a bit of a hurdle. And then every one you add is more of a hurdle. That's why I don't see very many of these kind of projects that are done by single developers or even two-person teams. You almost have to have a team to be able to specialize in all the different things that need to be done to do it effectively. Or you could just be Billy Hollis. <laughs> no, I have a team. I have, I have a three-person team. We are able to keep it down, I think, below what some people are. That's cool. But certainly, you look at the stuff that I showed on DNR TV, and I made the point on mm -hmm. the show, I could not have done it alone. Yeah. I, have a, I have just a couple of very brilliant guys. So, yeah, the lone developer out there doing things right now, he's got a pretty tall hill to climb. Mm. Now, we'll see that change over the next two years when you start to see – 
um, template kind of stuff come out from various people, yeah. probably including Microsoft, where you get ready to do some of this development, and there's a library of art, and there's a library of templates, and there's a library of color schemes, and, and so you just basically are picking and choosing from all those different things to get oh, you know, a high percentage, 90% plus of the user experience of designing it from scratch. Case in point, our friend Dax Pandey from India, from Bouge, India, uh, Nucation, he is has come out with a template of user interface elements, not only for, I mean, the demo he did is in Windows Forms, but, you know, nobody nobody really is that crazy about Windows Forms anymore, but he also has them for uh, web uh, for web controls and WPF controls and for blend. So what it is is there are sequences uh, and groups of controls that do common things, and you can just select them graphically and drag and drop them onto your surfaces and things like that. So you, I, te- you know. I think that's a good direction, yeah. yeah. And it'll have to go a little further in WPF. You can't just sort of spoof what you did in Windows Forms because you got more degrees of freedom in WPF. So you're going to have to enhance it and come up with some new ideas. But it's the right direction to be going in. Yeah, you've got layers to deal with where we didn't really have that before. Yeah. All right, guys. Let's get under the hood a little bit because I I get the visuals of this. And, and Billy, I've seen your app. I think it's absolutely fabulous. But, you know, some of the tricky bits that I think are happening under the hood, and maybe you can shine some more light on it, is – there's several cases at where you, you're filling in forms and moving page to page in those forms. That's Can you right. talk about the work you had to do to, to maintain consistency between the pages going backwards and forwards? When do you write to the database? Like, there seem to be a lot of very smart plumbing going on there that I, I get a sense when I look at the WPF stack in the XAML, in the XAML space just doesn't handle it itself. That's right. That stuff is not built in. And a, a huge portion of our development effort to date has been to create that plumbing. Um, and this, if you see some of the comments to some of the blog posts about the video, this starts coming out as an issue because people look at that and they go, I haven't seen samples that do that, that right. switch the pages in and out. How do you do that? Um, you know, a Windows Forms guy looks at it and goes, well, that's just kind of an improved version of what I've done my whole career. Right. But a web guy doesn't really get that whole fact that if I've got a screen and I just don't want to complete it, I want to sort of put it in suspended animation for a little while, that I just move another screen in place and make the first one invisible. It's still hanging around in memory, and then I can show it, animate its appearance into the main part whenever I want to. So basically there is an outer manager application. We call it the shell. It is conceptually similar, although far, far simpler, to what the patterns and practices guys called CAB, the composite application block. Right. The idea that, that it manages other pieces that get plugged into it. And, and yet, I want to emphasize that we are way, way simpler than anything they've done, but it does have that responsibility of handling the authentication and handling uh, the, the, the user navigation among the different pieces and holding on to things. One of the key elements... In making that whole thing work, oddly enough, is dirty checking. Yeah. Because here's the story behind all of that, and I found this to be true in Windows Forms applications, so I, I tried to replicate my architecture when I went to WPF. If you're going to have a lot of these screens, and many of them are going to be, to be suspended in some state where they are not saved, then your outer shell application absolutely must know what things have unsaved changes and which ones don't. 
that's just absolutely required. So we spend quite a bit of time in handling that aspect of the application of letting the shell know when there are, there are changes that are not saved. That way, if you attempt to shut down, then the application will come right back and tell you, no, no, you've got these changes. Tell me whether you want to throw them away or save them or cancel and go back and work on them some more. So that's one of the key things I think that a lot of web people would miss is, is that's not a natural part of their architectural vocabulary. It's interesting. I mean, you, you really, there's so much you had to create yourself to put this all work together. Uh, That's and right. It's all the stuff that we got for free in Windows Forms. We did get quite a bit for free in Windows Forms, and even some of the things that I had to create, that I had to create in Windows Forms as well as WPF, it was easier to create them in in, w, in, in Windows Forms. It's a lot easier to write a control in yeah. Windows Forms than it is in WPF. A lot easier. Hmm. So we did spend a lot of time on that, and I, I, I will warn anyone who decides to try to go down that road, you have to begin to understand the internals of WPF. You have to understand, for example, how the dependency property system works and how attached properties work. And you have to understand the dispatch system because you're going to get into situations where things are happening when XAML loads up, but they're not ready to happen yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. So your, your, your timing's important. Yeah. All the setup's not been done. You have to have the dispatcher send that to a future point in time to be done. These aren't trivial things to learn. And I can tell you because it took me months to figure them out. So that is one of the big areas, if you're going to do a serious WPF app, that most people don't appreciate. If you're going to write that infrastructure, you're looking at learning WPF internals, and there is nothing out there on how to learn that stuff in terms of books or, or even not very many good samples on it. Wow. The uh, user interface design process with uh, WPF and Silverlight, do, do the same old rules apply when you're designing WPF and Silverlight applications as, you know, say Alan Cooper put forth in About Face, met low those many years ago? You mean the same rules in terms of how you figure out what the user wants or the same rules in terms of how you create the pieces that make the interface work for the user? No, yeah, both of those things. But I was specific, specifically thinking about the technical aspects of it, the second part. Uh, on, the, on the technical aspects, from my perspective, our attitude was to question every single thing we ever did in Windows Forms. And yet, looking at many of your forms, they seem very WinForm-like. There's still drop-downs and text boxes and labels and buttons. They're better looking, but... And they're better acting in terms of, of the way they integrate with the rest of the app. Now, so, so, basically, we questioned every assumption. Nevertheless, some of our assumptions carried through. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are some ways in which we continue to do things the way we used to, and there are other situations in which we don't. Templated list boxes call, cause us to break all kinds of old practices. Yeah. Animation in terms of how we navigate around among the user elements breaks all kinds of, of, of old practices. But when it comes time to actually lay out the actual screens, you know, I think we did do a better, prettier job there. But the, 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 um, the differences aren't as major. But there are some that you might not expect, that you might not even notice. For, let me give you one good example. Because from my perspective, I think I may have mentioned this on the television show, is that one of the changes that you've got to make is to stop thinking about the UI as a set of rectangular regions. Yeah. Right. 
that that's an assumption that we've always had in HTML and Windows Forms. You stop that. So in our application, the little stick-up notes yeah. violate that, for example. But if you look at labels on a data entry form, I've always used left justified labels. I don't anymore. I use right justified because that preserves the white space mm-hmm. for the rest of the design. And, and a lot of these things don't seem to have a lot of utility in uh, the, the, the cosmetics and, and things like that until you realize what they do is they just kind of make it easier on the eyes and lower the stress levels of the people using it. Right. And I'm sure that a lot of people think that's really touchy-feely kind of stuff. You know, yeah. Boy, that sounds like something that, that Pragmatic Hollis would make fun of if somebody else said it. <laughs> do you, do you but, find? But this, in fact, I think it's a real effect. Do you find that most um, people who who use form, you know, who use applications that are essentially forms for filling in information, are still very much keyboard shortcut driven and don't like to use the mouse? Is it that, depends entirely upon the user role, the type of user, and the application involved. I find that it's split pretty heavily. There is a group of users that I would call not power users. They, they use a computer a lot, but they're not techies in that sense. They tend to rely very heavily on the mouse. Yeah. Uh, and then there are the folks who do more repetitious things, and they right. rely much more heavily on the keyboard. So, yeah. no, I don't think that there's – that's one of the reasons why you look at the, the, the user interface that we have, and I think it's a good pattern, but I don't think it applies to everybody because it is tweaked and optimized for a particular set of users. Well, Carl brought up uh, Alan Cooper already with the whole about-face thing. Those characterizations of, char- of users, mm. the guys personas. who yeah. – yeah, Those yeah. personas, they still apply. Just because we've got a better set of UI tools, that that doesn't change. They apply even more than they ever did. Yeah. Because now we have more flexibility to change things out in the UI to suit different personas. And in many respects, because of the separation of data and functionality versus visual appearance and, and some of the interaction, we, it's much cheaper for us now to come up with ways to make a user interface behave differently for different people. We really had a hard time doing that before, and now it's not so hard. So the idea of personas is even more relevant now than it ever was. So you're saying that we more now with, with the WPF model, you could really get into a UI that adapts to the way that user is using it. That's right. To, to, to talk about a pretty straightforward, simple example that I think even audibly I can, I can communicate, using these data templates, when we start to do searching, for example, where you search to find something in a list of entities, now the list that you display is subject to being formatted by data templates. And you can format them any way you want. Think of sort of HTML repeaters on steroids or whatever. Mm, right. So now you've got this capability to impose this template, but we can change the template on the fly without doing anything to the underlying data. Therefore, I might be varying the format of that list on a per-user basis. The users, there might be a process by which, let's say, a particular set of users pays to get their own layout, or we may get a tool that allows them to tweak the layout a little bit and add things to it and take things away, not unlike, say, the way some of the Vista Explorer stuff works, except that I think <laughs> like our, the templates we would do would be a lot nicer. But that, that allows us to, to customize to different users without doing anything to the back-end logic at all. Hmm. Well, I, I like, I'm just thinking about the idea of could I make a learning form that 
if I'm watching a particular user and they're using it more and more, maybe I get into hinting on shortcuts and focusing on never lifting your hands off the keyboard, where if it's a guy who's never in this app that I'm much more oriented on visuals and mouse moves and things like that to make it easier for him to discover what to go on. Like I, I find guys who are really good with the keyboard find tooltips incredibly annoying. Yes. Where anybody who's mouse-centric lives by tooltips. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, th- I think it is quite practical to put that kind of intelligence in because creating new visuals is the easy part. And, and if you've got any kind of a way to tell the difference, that would be the hard part in that kind of a scenario, would be to, to figure out what kind of user am I dealing with right now. Coming up with the visuals that, that help the user, that's the easy part. Yeah, I, and I get that. I get that you actually worked hard on the plumbing of this app more than you had to work hard on the visuals of the app. Oh, that, absolutely. In fact, we've reached the point now with the infrastructure that we have, and I think that the whole world will reach this point in a couple of three years in the WPF and Silverlight space. We have reached the point where I, I talked to someone about a new system just this week. It, it's in a completely different area from what that application is written for. And I looked at an old commercial product written in Fox Pro that does it and talked to them about some stuff that they fudged up in Excel. And, and when I sort of understood what they were driving at, I realized that I could do 80% of their application in very, very little time in using the, the, the infrastructure we've created. In fact, it would take me longer to do the requirements gathering and understand all the data they need and get the data structures right than it would to produce the interactive screens. Huh. Easily. Wow. Easily longer. So, yeah, we're going to reach that point where, I mean, why is, this, why is it so hard just to get a screen to put data in a database? I mean, that just shouldn't be very hard. Yeah. But aren't you essentially doing a sort of version of cut-and-paste inheritance here? It's because you have forms now that you can adapt to That's that right. Model. There are there are base elements that are taking care of a lot of the plumbing, right? And when you tweak for different entities, you know we use a lot of generics behind the scenes, so that we've got things that that we don't much care what the data type is. The kinds of things that are that are being done, just you just put in the type you want to work with, and it works with that type. You put a lot of thought, obviously, into making your infrastructure. Um, very adaptable and very agile for moving forward with new projects. I think so, and, and having, having done that on some Windows projects, we realized the value of that because um, there were customers for which that was a make-or-break thing for them, really, the ability to, to do that sort of thing. Now, not everybody has the time to do that, and, yeah. and I understand that. That's why I hope we will see alternatives for people where they don't have to do that themselves. From my own perspective, see, I'm, you know, I've talked to you guys about this. I'm one of the laziest SOBs in this industry. <laughs> and so I'm just not going to keep cutting and pasting and doing the same stuff over and over again. Right. I'm too easily bored and too lazy for that. So that's what drives me to find a better way of doing things. And, uh, and it never ends. I mean, um, because there's so much depth in WPF, this week... <laughs> This week I'm working on a way to change control templates on the fly because there are some interesting interaction capabilities. I need to do that. Well, guess what? There ain't no samples out on the web for how to change control templates on the fly. Hmm. So I'm having to figure that one out on my own. 
but, you know, that's a challenge that's interesting. And the end result, once all of this is done with this very good team that I have, is, yeah, we've something we think will apply to a lot of different lines of business in software as a service. That's why our client is willing to go down that road and make the investment, because they think that the small business space, being very, very underserved from a software perspective, is ready with the increasing bandwidth and with the evolution of good user experience, that it's time to take another run at this whole software as a service thing and see if we can't uh, get a little more traction this time. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik, and uh, let you know that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik. You know summer is in full swing now, and you're probably lying on the beach, but our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. You mentioned uh, uh, the lack of really good books and things like that. Uh, what about training? Is there any really good training resources out there for, for people who want to learn WPF and Silverlight? Well, the local training companies don't tend to do a very good job on that because, first of all, Microsoft has no curriculum yet, and they depend upon that. Okay. Some of the national training companies are doing a, a reasonably good job. Um, Walt Risher is training on, on stuff. I forget what company he is, he is doing that for, but he is training on WPF, and I know he's pretty good. Uh, now, I have seen a couple of the training companies, and I, I won't use any names so I, just because I want people to be careful. Sure. I've seen some, some training the syllabus for some training classes in WPF. And they talk about, you know, here's a couple hours on using Blend, and here's a couple hours on doing drag-and-drop layout. And I looked through the thing, and I thought, this really isn't very helpful. It doesn't really teach you the core concepts that you need to know about WPF sort of in order to in intelligently design with it. It's, it's feature-based, yeah. not concept-based. What you need is a concept-based class. You need a, that's, that's the number one class you need, the, the concept. That's class. right. You, you have to have that first. Uh, the other interesting thing about training that, that I, would, I would put out to you is that, you know, I have five days or so worth of material for my own training, but I, mm -hmm. I discourage people from doing a week-long training class on WPF. I encourage them to, to three-day classes. And the reason why is that there are so many radically different concepts that people need to sort of wrap their head around, that I think that you just sort of overflow them after three days, so unless you're just doing tons and tons of labs. Take three days, learn it, and then go home, digest it, come back, take another couple days. That's the way to on. do it. To me, that's the right way to do it. I just wonder if a bunch of this isn't going to just become plumbing in the next version of something. Well, now, that's a good point. And, I, you know, here's, here's my take on that. Yeah, I believe we will get to that point. 
two, three years from now, if you're starting right now, number one, it's not clear that that plumbing will be available to you in any reasonable time frame, so you'll have to learn it yourself. Plus, here's, here's the thing I wonder about. Because, yeah, I do believe the stuff ought to be there. Any rational evaluation would say that that plumbing stuff is going to be there. But you know what? In Windows Forms, we thought it would be there. In 2003, after I'd finished my first round with a whole bunch of plumbing for Windows Forms, my partner and I talked about making it into a product, and we didn't because it's very hard to make money in the tool space. Right. And, and, and I thought somebody else would do it anyway, and I didn't want to compete with half a dozen other people. Only one company attacked that space with any kind of, of vigor. And, and it, that area never really took off because they sort of did an enterprise-level thing that was very expensive. So it is not, even though I believe it will happen, I'm not promising it based on the equivalent Windows Forms experience. It's not clear whether it will happen or not. Now, I wonder if we're paralyzed because this stuff is hard, but people aren't willing to pay for it. We're used to this stuff being free. That's, that, that is one big thing that's holding it up. People are used to it being free. They, they think of new technologies in terms of saying, you know, um, let's just spend a couple of weeks and learn this and then go start developing with it. And right. Boy, that's not going to work here. It's just not. Yeah. And then, of course, in addition to that, there's the whole thing about, well, what do we do with these designer fellows? Do we need one? How do we get them involved in the process? And, and so that, there's just so many degrees of uncertainty that people have that they, that they just regard the risk as very high. And you know how business guys are about risk. Sure. Yeah. Man, they just don't like it. Nope. And, and if you can't tell them how much is something is going to cost to a pretty good degree of, of uh, confidence uh, and what the benefits are going to be for that, then they're reluctant to sign the checks. They don't want to be the first guys. They don't want to be the ones with the failed projects. Funny thing about risk, though, is that's what's required in order to get ahead in business. I mean, you know, Southwest Airlines isn't in the place it is right now because they sat around and, you know, didn't do their homework and didn't take a calculated risk when they needed to. That's right. And the folks I, I work with tend to be the ones who are prepared to take some degree of risk, and they know they have to in order to create or protect some competitive advantage. But you know what? They don't want to take any more risk than they have to. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they realize that some is necessary, they still are risk-averse in the sense that they want to minimize the risk. Sure. And so that's kind of a lot of sort of the approach that we take is that we've shown we can keep the risk down. And I think that's – when people buy our services, that's really what they're buying is low risk, yeah. much more so, I think, than technological innovation. And a, yeah, this is an interesting problem. And I, and I do see that there's generally been a culture now of – Technologies being held up because people know better than to leap. Yeah, um, that yeah. we're waiting, right? I mean, I really think that the whole Blu-ray HD DVD thing took as long as it did because the consumer just said, "Yeah, you guys let us know when you figure it out." Oh, by the That's way, right. by the way, do either of you guys want to buy a uh, brand new in the box HD DVD player? <laughs> nice, yeah. But I think WPF totally is serious, in the same man. trap. <laughs> Sorry. You've you've actually got an HD DVD player. I got one, and I didn't want it. I ordered the wrong thing accidentally. That's funny. I, it's still sitting in the box. But I think that WPF is trapped in the same thing. I think smart people have looked at it and went, whew, that's tough stuff. Let me know when you figure that out. Right. And they're moving on. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and it's almost and as if Silverlight the, lightened it up, and that's being more interesting. Well, the, and the benefit that you get over what you can do in HTML with Silverlight is 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 bigger than the benefit, the perceived benefit today of WPF over Windows Forms. Mm. I totally agree. The motivation of Silverlight is not is WPF light. The motivation of Silverlight is common client for Mac, PC, and some other computer. 
Uh, that's what's compelling about it. And you'll suffer through the WPF cost because you want that. That's right. And, and, and not just the, the fact that it, it's not just the visual stuff. It gives you capabilities running on the clients you never had before. There'll be, there'll be web pages out there with invisible Silverlight controls just to use the Silverlight runtime to get data on, on, on WCF. I, yeah. I guarantee it. Yep. You'll see it. Um, so that's a... Yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to tell people. They ask me this question a lot about when should I decide how to get started. And the circumstances vary so much, and the talent level is not really there. There's always a sweet spot kind of on climbing the curve when there's enough talent out there that the, and, and enough samples and enough institutional knowledge in the industry to kind of lower the risk and, and guide you in the right direction. But early enough before everybody jumps on the bandwagon, that's the spot you want. And I think we've got so many uncertainties, nobody can pick what that spot is in the WPF world. So from my perspective, I can't tell them that. What I tell them is look at where you are in terms of do you need the, the – do you, do you get a real competitive edge out of a compelling user experience? Because if you don't – there just isn't any point in making the investment right now. But if you do, then go ahead and get on it early. Make the investment. It won't hurt you to start looking at it now because the time span to get your head around it is so long that the earlier you start, the better you will understand your opportunities. That's the real problem here is that the, the significant portion of the development community doesn't get UI before we had WPF. So why would they value an improved one? <laughs> well... <laughs> I can't argue with that. I mean, you know, there's just this there's this folk folk wisdom about the fact that developers produce horrible UI, and yeah. and, and and it's true. I mean, and, and the web guys didn't make it any better. I mean, I looked at I saw ugly VB apps back in the nineties. Oh, I see sure. ugly Windows Forms apps today. I see ugly web apps. I, yeah, where, where do we see any segment of the industry besides games that 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 really does a good job in that area? And many games do lousy jobs, too. So here's a throw at you. When are we going to see a version of Studio in WPF? Ooh. Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, and I, I'm not being a Microsoft insider. I couldn't tell you that. No, but, um, but what a fine goal for Microsoft to have. You want, to, you want us to believe in WPF? Show us. Well, certainly it would be wonderful to break a lot of the com dependencies of Visual Studio, which is oh, goodness knows. kind of where, where some of its limitations are today. It would be today. also nice to have that great, rich UI layer, that compositing, kind of nice, glassy look. Oh, and, absolutely. And, yeah. and I would love to see it. I think the first thing you'll see is, is an evolution of what you already see in the WPF designer, which is that the property box becomes a WPF thing, and there's all kinds of interesting things you can do with it. They really haven't taken advantage of that yet. Sure. But they will, I think, and that'll be the first plug-in piece in Visual Studio we start to see that takes some advantage of WPF. I, I mean, given to me what's very, how impressive Blend is and how quickly they got it done and with a team that wasn't that huge, um, yeah, I'd love to see them take a run at doing Visual Studio that way. But, you know, it's just got so many moving parts, I think that just scares them off. I think it's a very challenging thing for them to achieve. And in theory, they could create a separation between that. But I'm sure, you know, that's up to them. And it would be a great milestone. You know, getting back to that sort of call on about face and so forth, 
the sovereign app, the one you have to look at every day, all day, hours and hours and hours, and Studio fits the bill yeah. for the majority of its users, that's the one where the fine details, those little things that make it less painful, reap such huge benefit. Yeah, and Indeed. that's one in which you would hope that the internal people in Microsoft use that product so much yes. that they themselves have a better idea about what it needs to, to be than some of the other stuff that they do because they're part of the user base for the product. Yeah, unlike many of the other things, you know, they don't build business apps, but they certainly can, uh, and they don't really use business apps, but they certainly use a lot of development tools, so they really care how good they are. You know, now yeah. that I think about it, it'd be kind of crazy not to go in that direction for them. I mean, it's, it's so, in you know, uh, it's such a logical next step. Yeah, we'll have to wait. Yeah, we'll it's a question of what version. You know, that you, the, Billy brings up valid points. There's an awful lot of legacy in studio. We were talking about this with somebody about Office too. Uh, I think it was at DevLink about how how uh, you know somebody was saying, when are we going to see an, uh, a brand new Office written from the ground up in uh, in WPF? And and my I put forth the idea that I don't think that's ever going to happen simply because there's so many business customers out there who are dependent on the inner goo of Office, those com objects, that they've written VBA applications around, that those things can never go away. I, they'd have to fork the product and, and come out with a, you know, a whole new suite called something else. But that being said, what choice do they have? What do you do in the next version of Office if you're not going to move to the next platform? Yeah. There needs to be a 64-bit version of Office. It isn't optional. Yeah, it and has it, to be 100% COM-free in that, in that case. Exactly. And they're, Well, they're, maybe not, because here's, here's what they could do. Okay, as we move into a world, and this would be two, three generations on out, as, in, as we move to a world where there's a lot more virtualization of stuff going on at the operating system level, hmm. now we've got open the possibility of the office product really being two big, big chunks. It's that part where you work on the documents and, you know, all the flashy visual stuff, and maybe often some virtual machine is all this legacy comp stuff that you just got to have with some clever means to have those two talk to one another. Now, that, to me, would be a direction that would kind of split the difference and might get them off the button. I don't know if that's practical or not, but that's certainly a direction. If I were them, I'd be, I'd be looking into. And just to be sure, we're totally blue sky oh, yeah, here. Totally. This, oh, yeah, This is a three guys have, making crap up I have up no at this idea point. what's going on. In, <laughs> I, have no, I have no contact with the office team. I have no idea what they're doing. I don't even like the ribbon. You don't like the ribbon? I don't like oh, the come ribbon. come on now. I, I didn't like it at first, but... After you, you really? I've been using it a year and a half, and I still don't like it. I mean, what it, don't you like about it? It's fine about eighty, ninety percent of the time, and then when I start to look for something that I used to know where it is, the ribbon, the organization of the ribbon is it's. it's I'm hunting through the different tabs oh, okay. trying to find things, and there are some things that are not on any tab of that ribbon. Uh -oh. Things that I know how to do, things that have been in the product for a long time. Yeah, but see, the I, problem here is that you know the old product. Yeah, that's and you right. Keep if you if, for the regular user, they would never find that. Gra so that's it's not right. a problem. Grandpa Hollis is cranky. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much. Yeah, back in my day, we had menus, and we were happy to have them. Oh, and, and, we yeah, were just in Nashville I'll... with you too. And what was the line you coughed up that just about had everybody crying? Say Putting what? lipstick on a pig. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just an old Southern expression. That's an old one, yeah. And you know that's. Uh, and, and actually, Rocky Lotka was the guy who inspired me to say that because we were on a panel, and he was talking about the fact that there was a company he knew that 
said, you know, we've got these classic DB developers, and when we move to .NET, we're going we're gonna to make them program in C-sharp because then they'll be better developers than they oh, would be in db.net. Man, what kind of thinking is that? I, I don't know, but, you know, that, that's why I said, you know, I said, in the South, we call that putting lipstick on the pig. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, good developers are good developers in just about any language, and bad developers are bad developers in any language. And, you know, there are things at the margin you can do to encourage them to go one way or block some bad things, but the, that, that's, that's small compared to the general quality level. I agree. Uh, and then where people settle in at. I agree. Yeah, no, it's it, this is an interesting problem. So, uh, Billy, what are you going to do next? Like, you, you all right? You've uh, what, what I love is that you you show that WPF can build a viable app with all the features that we really really want, and then you start talking about doing it in Silverlight. So you you brought us up smart client solution, and now you're taking it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, now see from my perspective. Silverlight really is a smart client. We're just sneaking the smart client right into the browser, right under the noses of those HTML guys, and they don't even know it. And before they, they'll look up one day and realize that they've got to learn smart client programming techniques. Right. Because essentially what Silverlight looks like is a smart client deployment technology for browsers. That's right. See, what they're, they're going to start out doing, you know, oh, you know, I use this instead of Flash. I need this little rectangular piece here. It needs to be Silverlight because it could be jazzy and such. And that will last for a year or two while they sort of get their bearings about what the Silverlight stuff will do. And then you'll start to see the Silverlight apps that are the equivalent of that business app that I, that I did for DNR, right. and that just completely breaks the mold. And when you reach a certain point where user expectations are such that people have seen enough of that, they go up. Now, people are just going to expect that, and these guys are going to have to learn a radically different programming model. It's going to be funny, because a lot of these guys, I talked to them, and they've been in the industry maybe 10 years. They're young, for the most part, compared to me anyway, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they've never done anything but browser-based programming. Right. And they've always been used to being the innovators, the guys on the edge, the guys that were hip, the guys that were cool, the guys that could do stuff nobody else can do. And they're going to have to learn for the first time in their career what it's like to be on the trailing edge a little while, hmm. which I think is going to be interesting. The gods of vengeance and iron ear, smacking them down. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, I, I'm i with you that I don't think we're anywhere near understanding the full impact of Silverlight. When I really, especially 2.0, the big thing for me that made my eyes bug out, which I, I just don't see anybody talking about these days, is they got the CLR running on a, on a non-Windows platform. That's right. Yeah. And now right now it's running inside a sandbox that is the browser, but dude, yeah, get it out of the last. browser. Think about what you can do. You know, I... Well, I don't know what you're going to say, but I got my own ideas about that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think that there's more legal concerns than anything else. You know, they Microsoft already got its hand slapped for trying to do that with the browsers, and uh, you know, Edge sort of sort of Edge Netscape out, and they have to be very careful of anything that is going to give them uh, a competitive advantage like that. And uh, that's that's my take. Well, all they have to do is egg on Adobe until Adobe does something like that, and then Microsoft can just say, "Well, we're just responding to Adobe." Well, you know, they can you can say that and stuff, but that doesn't keep Google from suing or Apple from suing, you know. And, and Google and Apple do that stuff all the time, and Adobe does this stuff all the time. This is the way the software industry works. They do whatever they can to get their stuff on your desktop. Real, real player. Talk about a virus. Quick time. <laughs> Talk about a virus. 
get that shit off my box. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just want to watch a video. That innocent-looking checkbox for Google Toolbar when you put on Adobe Acrobat. Just Oh, man. Ah. Good Lord. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, I found uh, a few of my friends who have Macs were a little hesitant at first to install Silverlight. And then I told them about Netflix and the Olympics. And now, of course, you know, the Democratic National Convention was covered, in, which was amazing footage. By that. That, that thing filled my screen. I had it on my plasma TV, and it looked just like I was watching the Discovery Channel. It was unbelievable. Silverlight. But uh, yeah. Yeah, a, lot of my, a few of my MacBook friends were hesitant to install that because uh, not only does it require a reboot of Safari, but it required a reboot of the, the laptop itself. Really? That's the, I didn't know that. It certainly does not require a reboot on Windows. So I didn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. But it didn't show up until they restarted um, huh. the Mac. Well, that may get better as, as they you know, get a better feel for, for how to get it there. I, I, I don't know what the challenges are. But I certainly like seeing those media-based things, increasing the penetration. Of course, the sports-related things. Um, I know that's part of Microsoft's strategy is to get... Besides the Olympics, they're try, they have Major League Baseball, and they're trying to get the other major sport things to, to go in that direction. That would be, I think, uh, a good way to increase the adoption. Uh, I partic- Hey, I'm in, I'm in Tennessee. I'd love to see them manage to nail NASCAR.com, which yeah. has one of the worst-designed websites of any major entity that I visit regularly. Yeah. It's just horrible. Mm. Yeah, no, there's, there's possibilities here, and it's interesting to see which way they go, too, because, uh, you know, I know you get the legal concern side of this, uh, Carl, for Silverlight, but I think also just customer demand. When folks start needing this capability, wanting to do that, the fact that we can actually build cross-platform apps, I think that's a big deal yeah. for everyone. Yeah. We're back. We need to do that again. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't want to underestimate. I don't. I won't. I don't want to underplay the reaction to these Mac people who were very, very afraid of installing anything Microsoft on their precious Macs. I, I understand that. I, that yeah. That's that's that's, that's a what problem. They, for some of them, that's what they thought they were getting away from yeah. by getting into the Mac world in the first yeah. place. So I kind of understand, but yeah you know it it you hit that critical point where there's just so much stuff out there that you go to do something and you gotta have it and and i don't know when i don't know when we'll hit that point a year two years whatever it will eventually happen and we'll get past that the same way we got past it with acrobat the same way we got past it with flash same way we got past it with you know the other stuff that we I all think it's use. up to us right us net developers who have macbooks to to install silverlight and to go to netflix and bring up movies and show your yeah. mac friends that hey you know this stuff is actually really good yeah yeah this whole idea that nothing and nothing bad happened and nothing bad happened right yeah Nobody and, died. The, and the thing, the thing I think I'm worried about most at this point is that now that <laughs> what happens when people write buggy Silverlight applications? Yeah, which they're going to do, okay? Because now oh, they've sure. got the, the applications are. You know, you can write buggy JavaScript too, and your pages act silly. But the space in which you can do that is considerably smaller than the surface area in which you could you could make bugs in in a, in a Silverlight program. So I, I, I'm what I'm afraid of. The thing that scares me most about the whole Silverlight curve is that the that pressure to do something quickly when people finally go, oh man, this stuff is great. This is just what we need. Number one, the expertise to do it is not going to be there. 
neither from a programming perspective nor from a design of the user interface perspective and how to use the step. Because, it, as, I, as I've said several times, it just takes a long time to get your head around it. So there will be this blip where people go, oh, well, this, this is just what all we, we all need. But it will be six months to a year before you get the cadre of people trained up and how to do it. And so you're going to see a lot of stuff rushed and hacked, and there's, it's going to be buggy. The, the thing I would really hate is for these buggy apps to make people think that Silverlight itself is buggy because they, you know, they, the first three of the first four Silverlight things they tried blew up in their face because of bad programming. That scares me the most. Yeah, but that's also the way it goes, too, with apps. I mean, what is it about new technologies? And I keep looking for WPF to do this as well, where we have to start out doing bad things with it. To learn the lessons and eventually grow to do good things. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they, just like those early VB forms that were chartreuse and yellow. Yeah. Right? Like, they, uh, you got to get those. Well, we've already moved through a couple of, couple of mistakes in the design space, for example. Because you guys probably remember two, three years ago when the word was, here's how you do this WPF design process. And there were basically a couple of different ways of doing it. One was where they said, well, get a designer to figure out all the UI, and he'll hand this thing over, and then a programmer just puts code behind it, and you're done. And everything worked. Yeah, and that was just, that was silly. I mean, there are various ways in which it's silly. A designer is not a developer. The stuff he's going to produce may not be production-ready. Or she. And they don't necessarily know the problem space, the domain, as well as the developer does. So they don't know all the things that need to go on the UI. And, and that, that doesn't work. And then they came along and said, well, yeah, but then you could also have the developer do the UI the way he always has and turn it over to a designer and make it better. And that's even stupider. <laughs> because once the guy has produced a UI, I mean, the designer is not going to be able to do much to it except kind of decorate it, right? He can't design right. interaction patterns into it because it's already set now. The developer's already done it, and he doesn't know how to do it. So both of those two patterns, I think most people are convinced now, are pretty silly. They don't work. So we're back to the one pattern there may be several patterns that work. The one that, that I know works and that other people I've talked to seem, to seem to use is more of a collaborative thing. The designer's part of the team, but the developer's part of the team too. And you work to get, or several developers, or several de- designers, and you get everybody working on understanding the domain, the problem domain, and then everybody pumps ideas in. And one class of ideas comes in from the designers, other classes of ideas come in from the developers, and out of that mix comes a good collaborative, high-quality product. And that's so at least we've made some progress in terms of how we're going to avoid some of the disasters that are waiting to happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's the combination as well. And, I, and I, the big one that I was really thinking of when you were going through these variations is, and you've got to make this iterative. You know, it's not enough to yeah. you build the UI first and you add the code, or you add the code first and you build the UI. Yeah. What happens the next time around? Yeah. Is there some way to let these guys get back in and have and be successful? That's just the only way to do it now. Two or three years from now, when you've got a bunch of examples out there to look like, to look at, you might say, oh, well, there's an app, and it pretty much is kind of what we want. Just, you know, developers, make it like that. Yeah. And, and you won't really need designers to do all the interaction and such. The developers will be able to, to come up with something that's acceptable quality. We can't do that right now. Yeah. You know, it's just not that simple to do. You know, we, we haven't even touched on this, but I'd be interested in, in your thoughts as we're, I know we're running low on time. How painful 
were these apps to debug? Ah, good question. They're, they're, they're worse than normal apps, but not horribly worse if you structure your XAML right and don't, and don't put stuff in XAML that really ought to go in code. Right. Um, it's, yeah, there, there are certainly issues, but I haven't, we have not found the debugging issues to be so wildly different that they were, they were just out there, except for one or two instances over the course of the entire effort where something would come up when we just didn't have any way of pinning down what happened. The, the fact that you don't step, you can't step through XAML is a big right. problem. And there is a fair amount of magic going on underneath. So some of the, the eventing stuff that happens will complicate your debugging process. But the better you understand WPF internals, the more you know how to deal with that. But I get a sense we're back to an era where we're needing to instrument our XAML code, put in little tags to say, I got here, I got here, you know, my values are here so that we, you know, it's, it, it's a very old school way of debugging. <laughs> Reminds yeah. me of ASP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> response.write, response.end. Oh, Lordy. Hey, uh, Billy, before we let you go here, what about that tech ed quality panel? What? You know, I had a good time. The video of that just went up, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, just did, did an episode a while back. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of pretty intense disagreement on the panel. Some of it was just terminology. Yeah, I really think you were all sort of in agreement, just not, I don't know, unnecessarily pointing out stupid shit. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, there no was definitely some violent agreement going on. Uh, there, there was <laughs> some. But, you know, I think there, there were some philosophical differences, too. Yeah. Probably to tell whether or not that's true, the central question that I wish I'd thought of at the time that would differentiate is to ask the, the other guys that, that seem to disagree with me, would you ever compromise quality because of resource or time constraints, or would you just insist on reducing the feature set instead? Now, if I heard Jeffrey Palermo correctly... He said that, you know, you reduce the feature set. You don't compromise on quality. And I think Neil Rudin was pretty much in that same boat, if I understood what they said. And, you know, from my perspective, there are situations where I would compromise quality because of resource or time constraints. They are unusual circumstances that a very high percentage of the time, the whole high-quality approach is definitely the way to go. But, but a very high percentage isn't the same thing. As all the time. Well, and what you were saying is you can have quality without without uh, going overboard to ensure quality. I think what you were saying is some of the processes that the lengths that people go to to get zero bugs uh, just add three or four times the complexity that needs to be there. I think that's what Th- that, you're saying. Yeah, that they just have cost-benefit ratios that are just out of whack. Yeah. This, this is back to that old James Joyce quote of software is never finished, only abandoned. Only abandoned, yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, I really did th- think there was a pretty big philosophical disagreement about when I said, you know, from my perspective, they talk about goals. From my perspective, my goal is to do what's best for the user, what the user needs. And everything else is subservient to that goal, is, is defined in that context. And they, they didn't seem to like that statement much. And, and I really believe in that because, I mean, these are the guys we do it for. They're the ones we, the reason the software exists. They're the ones that, that pay the check. And, you know, there are, there are some interesting edge cases to me that really test this whole, whole thing. So yes. let's suppose that Microsoft, for example, adopted exactly what they said that they should do on DOS 1.0. What would have been the outcome? I, I remember one of the most memorable quotes that you made was, and it was, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, 
You know, if uh, if the manager comes to you and says, uh, we either ship next week uh, and lose, you know, $10 million in revenue, or we ship now and save that revenue with something that's 95% there, yeah. well, guess what my decision's going to be? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And And so there are those edge cases. They are unusual. You do have to you do have to sometimes fight back against business people that want to cut too many corners. There is no question there. And I think that's what they're getting at, and that's what they're pushing on, is because they do get a lot of business users that want to cut the corners. And, and I understand why they get upset about that. But you also got to push back on numbers. Yeah, we're going to make you money now by shipping early, yeah. but we're going to cost you money later in bug fixes. It's, it's all cost-benefit. It's, it's all about what's best for the, for the company, the organization you're producing the software for. And quality is important, but you, you kind of define it in context. That was the point I made. So I would like to think that we are more in agreement than the panel appeared to be. And I'm not sure whether we are or not. Uh, we'd have to get our terminology straight. And I'd have to ask some hard questions of these guys and, and get yes or no answers on them to see. Billy, I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. I, I enjoyed it. Sorry I didn't get to talk more about the Twitter stuff, which I think is pretty funny. But <laughs> Everybody will understand the Twitter stuff if you just sign up to This Is Pointless. I think we get it. I think we get yeah, your position. There's not much more to know. <laughs> Thanks, Billy. You're welcome, guys. All right. We'll see you next time Bye-bye. on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC, yes, I'm a talk.